We've heard from Deuteronomy that the blood is the life of the animal. We've heard from Colossians to clothe yourselves with Christ. Let's hear directly from Jesus this morning, and I'm going to invite you to turn to our text right away, John 6, starting at verse 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I, get, I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. That's his home base for ministry. Let's begin with prayer. Father, may we hear you clearly this morning. May we hear you and not be stumbling over your words, difficult as they are. May we hear you and not grumble at your words, difficult as they are. May we hear you and not say, this is too hard of a word for us to receive. Who can accept this? God, may we accept your word this morning as it comes to us and be changed because we were here today. We pray this in your name. Amen. There's a story around our house that gets referenced an awful lot. Well, not an awful lot, but enough. Uh, and for those of you that have spent any time around me, you have discovered a couple things. I've referenced them in messages before. Um, I don't like tomatoes, and you can't convert me to like tomatoes. They taste terrible. I try them three times a year. They're awful. They, they taste worse from the garden. If you're going to encourage me to try them fresh from the garden, they taste even more like tomatoes, which is the reason I don't like them. But uh, more importantly, uh, I have a sweet tooth, and I think it's under pretty good control these days. It's an inherited trait that I've passed on to my kids, um, and I'm cool with that. I like that. But I have a sweet tooth, and so I was around the house a couple years ago. I was the only one that was around at the time, and it was one of those points in the afternoon where I thought something sweet would taste really good. So I went to the refrigerator, and I opened it up, and there's a half-used container of frosting in there. That's a good start. And I thought to myself, it would be really nice to find some way, something to put this on. Not a lot, of course, but something to put this on. And so, um, I mean, I have no shame in eating it by itself, but I was trying to be, you know, controlled about this. Right near it is some celery. And so the, the theory that, that's put out there is that it takes more calories, you burn more calories eating celery than you actually get from the celery. Now, of course, you know, who knows the reality? I'm sure the, the scientists have a lot of reality on that, and that's not really the case. But even if it is, it's negligible. 
So my thinking was, if I take the celery and if I put the frosting on there, maybe it'll cancel out a few of these calories and be the perfect vehicle to deliver that frosting. And indeed, it worked out very well. I liked it very much, but I'm ridiculed sometimes for using celery to eat frosting. I have some in my fridge in the office. If anybody has frosting, I'll do it again today, and I've done it since then. But here's the thing. That, that mental exercise I was doing is ridiculous, right? But sometimes we can do that. Sometimes we can justify poor eating habits, and way too easily. We can really easily do that sometimes. Last week and the week before, Pastor Jody was preaching on Jesus as the bread of life, and really this is the third installment of that same uh, uh, topic, Jesus the bread of life. If you weren't here for the last two weeks, I wasn't here two weeks ago, I listened to the podcast on my phone, you can do that, Android and iOS users both, you can go on the website and listen if you didn't, because Jody did a wonderful job the past two weeks, especially last week, Pastor Jody pointed out that Jesus satisfies, and I think it was excellent how it was done throughout the entire service to point out that we can look to all kinds of other areas for satisfaction, but it's only Jesus that actually satisfies. He offers food for the body and also for the soul. And I want to build on that today. I want to build on that by saying that in Jesus Christ, what we see today is that we are invited to become one of his own. You are invited to become one of his own, to receive your new identity, your true identity. It only comes through Jesus Christ. You'll get promises that it comes from all kinds of other areas, but it only actually comes through Jesus Christ. And so as we talk about bread, let's uh, talk a little bit about what Jesus said. Let's kind of track through a couple of key moments in John chapter 6. If you have your Bible or your phone, keep it open to John chapter 6 as we go through. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, in the ancient world, in Jesus' day, bread equals food. It's the entree. It's the main dish. Bread does not equal, like we sometimes mean it, the Texas toast on the side of your plate that you might get to if, if you're hungry after the main course. Jesus isn't saying this is a supplemental thing. He says bread. He means the entree, the thing that's going to fill you up. That's what it meant back then. It was a very valuable this was a primary source of food. This all, when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, I'm the bread from heaven, all of those come after he's fed the 5,000, where he's taken a small amount of food and multiplied it so there are a lot of leftovers. And what we should recognize is that for an awful lot of people who were eating that food and were full and satisfied, they were people who lived kind of hand in mouth quite often, so being full was probably not as common as it is for us. Certainly they experienced it, but Jesus filled them, and they were full. And they're experiencing something that for some of them, they might have rarely experienced in their lives. But then Jesus has physically fed them, and he has this audience there, and he says, would you like something more because I have plenty more to offer than just the physical food? How about if I can give you value to your existence? How about if I can tell you that your life can matter now and more to come? And Jesus pits this against the idea of just the food, the physical food that they've eaten. If you go to verse 27 of John 6, Jesus says, uh, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you 
For on him God has placed, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now I'm a believer that the that work that we want to work, that we want to achieve, that we want to do, that we want to accomplish is a gift from God. That's part of the creativity that God has instilled within us, that we have a desire to complete things and to do tasks and to build and to make and to create. And work by its very nature has intrinsic value. God has given it to us and it matters. Not everything we do has value. We can do wrong with that work ethic that God has given us, but the fact that God has given it matters. It has value. And even so, we have to recognize that even the good things that we can do in this life that God has given us, not all of those have eternal value. Some of the things that we can do in this life with our God-given work ethic and gifts are only of value in this life. Jesus is inviting them to eternal work, and indeed us to eternal work as well, when he says, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. I'm the bread of life. A week ago Friday, we had a tree in our backyard that needed to go. It was dead, and it had things living in it. I had to cut it down. It was a lot of fun. I, I, a chainsaw, and then when I got to the, the actual trunk, I was there with an axe chopping away. I didn't feel like lifting weights at all that week, which is a great excuse not to lift weights at all that week. I chopped away on that thing. I was so much fun to take out that tree. That may not be your idea of fun. I loved it. That work has value, but really only for the backyard. Really only because God kind of gave me that, the, the ambition and the, the ability to chop it down and do all that and the desire, but it doesn't have eternal value. That will not be written in the annals of history. It'll only be remembered by me when I go in my backyard, right? It's other than this moment, we're not going to talk about it probably much at all again, unless I bring it up. If you look in the back of the room, we put just installed new red doors on the church, and they look beautiful, don't they? They provide all this magnificent light in this room that we never knew we were missing in all these years. The old red doors were fine. They just weren't quite secure enough. Uh, but the new red doors look great. But it's interesting, when I was presenting, or we talked about this for about a year and a half, when I would talk to people and say, you know what, we think we need to replace the red doors with some new doors. If I left out that word red, alarm bells went off for a few people. Wait, they're not going to be red anymore? Oh, no, wait, I just left out that detail. But isn't it interesting? Red, white, or blue, do those doors actually have eternal value as doors? We could use them for eternal value when we have relationships with people, when we greet people and bring them into the presence of God in this place. But the doors themselves are just doors. We could take as good a care as possible of those doors for the next 57 years, and they will eventually rust. They're just doors. It's good for now. So we have to recognize that there's a lot of good things that we can do and have and be involved in in this life, but they don't all have eternal value. But wouldn't you like to get to the end of your life and realize that you were part of something bigger than yourself? Wouldn't you like to get to the end of your life and realize that you were part of something that will last, not just for one generation or two generations, but into eternity? It would never go away, and that's a good thing. And that's what Jesus offers. He says, you had your fill physically, but you'll be hungry again tomorrow. What if you wouldn't be? 
What if I could change that for you? Because by the grace of God, you exist today. It's because God gave us life that you exist. Don't believe any other idea. That's why we're here. And it's by grace through Jesus Christ that we're offered the existence to live forever. It's an invitation that Jesus gives that we can be a part of his kingdom and a part of a greater work than ourselves, than anything we could accomplish without him. How does Jesus do this? If you go to John 6, 29, Jesus gets a little more bold in his words. Right? He's been talking about, well, don't eat the food that spoils. I've got something better. Then he says, the work of God in verse 29 is this, to believe in the one he has sent. He's very clearly pointing to who has been sent in all of his words. These are bold statements. Jesus says, believe. Believe me when I say that I am the bread of life, that that actually means what I say. Believe me when I say I am the bread of life, that I'm offering you something of eternal value. Jesus says that. It's an invitation to us. And by saying I'm the bread of life, he's not saying I'm the bacon on the side of your plate. He's not saying I'm the option that you get instead of pancakes at Denny's. He's not saying I'm the bag of things that you feed ducks at the pond because nobody wants to eat the end of me. And he's not saying I'm a salad topper. Jesus is saying I'm the full meal. I'm the combination platter. I'm it. I am everything that you need. There's no other promise you should believe that will deliver on that. So Jesus is the bread of life. How then are your eating habits today? Are you feasting on him as the bread of life? I personally wish I could eat like a hobbit. Uh, they eat multiple meals a day. I don't know if anybody's with me. They eat breakfast, second breakfast, elevensies, lunch, afternoon, tea, dinner, and supper. Sounds great. It sounds wonderful. But if I may point out, you can eat an awful lot of things in this life, and you can eat an awful lot of wrong things in this life. And if I kept up that schedule, I can guarantee you I'd eat a lot of wrong things in this life and enjoy every bite, I'm sure. But the thing is, we, reckon, we have to recognize that your input has direct correlation to your output. What you bring in, what you take in, not just physically, what you take in mentally, what you read, what you hear, what you listen to, all of those things affect what you believe. And if we're feasting on the wrong thing, we're going to believe the wrong thing. And what we get in Jesus is we get uh, this promise, uh, this invitation to become who you're supposed to be because you're feasting on the right thing. It's an identity issue. If you ever wonder, salvation, what are we saved to? We're saved to becoming a new person, a new creation. Not just reconstituted old, but something new in Jesus. And your eating habits will determine if this is fulfilled or not in you. If you take this invitation. That's not faith by works, by the way. Jesus is giving the invitation. He says, now you need to eat the bread. And one of the things that we can do, if you look at what Jesus kind of talks about with the crowd that he has there, you can see that for many of them, this idea of this fresh bread of Jesus is, is interesting, intriguing. They sit and listen to it. But it sounds like a lot of them, I'm going to push our metaphor a little bit this morning, but Jesus pushes it farther than I do, so I feel okay doing this. I'm going to push it with the bread and just say, a lot of them appear to be eating stale bread rather than fresh bread when it comes to what's being offered. 
You'll hear people say, uh, live in, look back to glory days, you know, uh, younger days. Uh, we all do it. Uh, you know, I look at my kids sometimes and I think, boy, the uh, amount of worries that they have compared to the amount of worries that come with adulting, it just seems some days you just want to be a kid again. You're like, that would be so much better to just play in the backyard for a day or something like that, or just pick up rocks and put them in your pocket, you know, and just get excited about the little things. You, you, we also will hear sometimes, you know, remember the days when kids used to just play outside, and they never do that anymore. And I was part of the last uh, generation that played outside, you know, where we were kind of sent out in the morning, and we came back. We went to somebody's house for lunch. Whether it was ours or not, it didn't matter. And then we came back around dinner time. Uh, we hear that kind of thing. Remember when kids played outside? We, we go back to the glory days, the good old days. Remember when gas was a nickel? Whatever it is, we know what those things are. What we hear in Jesus when he talks to the crowd, we hear him talk to them, and we've heard this over the last couple weeks, and, and he's hearkening, they're hearkening back to Moses and manna given in the wilderness when God rescued them from Egypt, but they were in between rescue from Egypt and the promised land. And they're in the wilderness, and they're complaining about food, uh, and God gives them bread from heaven, manna. And he gives them quail to eat. But when Jesus is talking to them, he says, you guys are living back in the days of the promise, and you're thinking back in the days of the promise to that superstar of the faith, Moses, and that's all that you're living out. You're living out the glory days through tradition alone. Tradition has become your faith. Now, I think tradition is incredibly valuable. Uh, history is my discipline. I like this kind of stuff. Tradition is intended to sustain us, especially in times when we're in the wilderness. It matters, right? The creeds, I think, are, are very important. That's why we still say them around here. Those are the kind of things that, that help us recognize we're part of something bigger than ourselves. That's why I think it's important to come to church even when you don't feel like it, because you're entering into worship with God, not simply based on your feelings, but you're entering in and being sustained by the tradition as well. You need that. However, tradition becomes a problem when it is our faith, when that's all we have when that's all we're resting on, and we do things simply because we've always done them, without the meaning anymore. When God gave the people in, in the wilderness manna to eat from heaven, he gave them that to sustain them for a period of time. It was given to get Israel into the promised land, not intended to make the wilderness the promised land. And Jesus is saying, you're acting as if the wilderness is now the promised land. You know that there's a promised Messiah coming, but yet you're living in the past, not seeing what's being offered before you, eating the old stale bread that was. Jesus doesn't say it as overtly here, but he alludes to it so many times, and it's kind of in the background here. The issue of the law could be brought in too. That was given to the people to teach them holiness, to teach them God's character and to set the terms for the kingdom of God when the Messiah finally came and set up the kingdom of God. It was never intended to become God's kingdom, and yet it did for so many people. Jesus says, you're missing what's right before you. The bread from heaven has come down right now, right here, and Jesus is offering them the glorious days to come, and they're still living in the glory days. They're missing the point. And you can test this in your own life. If, if this is where your faith is at, 
you know, we just filled out the little card about, uh, you know, what, how did First Covenant change your life, but think to yourself about your best memories of your faith in Jesus Christ. Worship, church, fellowship, camp, whatever it is. If the best memories that you have are more than a decade old, you might be in the danger zone. That doesn't invalidate those experiences. It just says we need to have some fresh ones too. We need to be living that faith now, not just in the past. The other thing, if we push the the metaphor even just a little bit further, is, uh, I I don't want to dwell on this too long, but I think it's worth noting, moldy bread. Right? So some people might have stale bread in their pantry, and it's tradition that has uh, substitutes as faith. Uh, the meaning is a little bit gone by this point. It's not as alive and well as Jesus uh, talks about with those who are resting on the faith of the past alone. Moldy faith would be much more in the uh, fruitless. You, you kind of accepted Jesus, but nothing's ever really changed. And, and in that sense, uh, we can look back to the manna again. Manna was given, bread from heaven, by God, to the people in the wilderness. And, and Jesus says one important thing about it right now. He says God provided it, and twice he says those who ate it in the desert still did what? They still died. It was only meant for a time. It wasn't meant for eternity. It was not eternal food. But we should also point out that if you read about the manna, and they would have known this, that when God gives the bread from heaven, the manna, in the wilderness, he says, don't keep it overnight. The only time they're allowed to do that is when they collect it on Friday to keep an extra ration. He gives them a double portion for the Sabbath. But during the week, don't keep it because it'll get rancid by the next day because they're supposed to rely on God for their daily bread, literally. They're relying on God for the daily bread. If you try and eat it the next day, you're going to get sick. It's not going to work because it's gone bad. And without realizing it, it's easy to have a faith like this, where we accepted Jesus, but we kind of put him in the box of childhood nostalgia for a lot of us. We put him in with everything else, and and he makes up a portion of our identity, but he doesn't make up the core of our identity, which is the invitation Jesus is giving. I am supposed to be your identity, not a part of your identity. And so we can kind of sift through the box of childhood memories we might have or memories throughout our life, and, and maybe without realizing it, we've, we've accepted something but never done anything with it. So we look through that box of childhood mem- memories, and you might see your first-grade t-ball picture and a fifth-grade book report that's, that's making up your identity of who you are and your baseball card collection or your football card collection or maybe your Pokemon card collection, whatever it was. Maybe you have a Barbie you held on to. Maybe you have a McDonald's toy back from the 80s when they were cool, right? And maybe you have your confirmation Bible in there and your diploma. But a lot of these things are dusty and they make up just a little bit of who you are and the foundation of who you are, but not the totality of who you are. Jesus is offering something more than that, than just a little piece of your identity that you can have, a little insurance plan for your life. The truth of the matter is when it comes to food, It must be eaten for effectiveness. And so the same thing must happen here. If Jesus is the bread of life, if it's going to be effective, we've got to consume the bread. We've got to take it in. And so what Jesus is doing, if you look at kind of two levels of what he's doing, in simple terms, he's doing one of the things he does over and over and over again. Jesus invites people to follow him, to be a disciple. 
That is part of what he's doing here. It's a call to commitment, and it's a call to belief. The, the call of God is to believe in the one that he's sent. And Jesus makes it clear, that's me. That's who it is. So believe when I say I'm the bread of life. But what stops us from, from following all too often is that we are eating stale bread. We take the offer, but we let it get a little bit hard. And what that often is in our own lives is fear operating, but we often call it safety. I'm just playing it safe. But it's fear that motivates us behind that. It is safer for us in this life to not make any changes. It is safer for us in this life to enjoy the benefits that God freely has given us that are of value in this life, but do not carry us on to eternity without Jesus Christ. It is safer to live within the framework that God's given us of our gifts and abilities and use those for our own prosperity, maybe even the success of our own careers and lives, and even for others, for the good of others. We can do that with, with everything that God has given us, the ability to walk and breathe and all that, with the life we've given, even morality itself, which doesn't make any sense apart from God, we'll sometimes use it, completely divorced and devoid from God, as if it makes sense away from him. And we can use those, and we can have great success in this life, but it ends. It's only this life. And Jesus is offering us so much more. And fear, we call it safety, often stops us from engaging with that invitation that Jesus gives. Because when we change, change brings conflict. Can we hear that clearly this morning? Anytime you change anything, it brings conflict. It does. It brings unsettledness. Things change. And it may make us temporarily not feel good or even not feel happy. And I don't know if you watch sometimes, Christmas is the big time when they come on, those movies where people come home to their houses at Christmas time, and there's tension in the air within the family. And what does some mom or dad try and do within those, or some brother or sister? They try and cut the tension a little bit. Let's sing a song. Let's go back to the traditions that we had when we were kids to try and pacify this rather than deal with the real issue or settle down the tone a little bit. Or even, I can think in my own marriage, early on in my own marriage, when sometimes there'd be a little tension in the relationship, which happens in every marriage, right? Uh, sometimes I would try and cut a joke or something like that or, or get a funny line in, and it never worked, right? And now, now of course, I can do it with my kids, and it works because I'm hilarious. But <laughs> change brings conflict. And fear stops us. From change. We're afraid of that. And it is safer not to change all too often and get the benefits of this life and we call it good. But Jesus is offering us so much more. And that can happen corporately too, right? It happens in churches all across the country. It's happened in ours too over the years. It's safer not to change anything as his people too. Don't mess with the facilities, the ministries, the music, the service times, whatever you want to pick. And often what is driving us is fear. We want safety but we're not being driven by our Savior in those cases. We're not feasting on the bread of life. That's the first level of what Jesus is offering us to follow. At a much deeper level, at a much more important level, at the identity level, Jesus is inviting us to radical commitment. So it's one thing to follow behind something. 
But it's another thing to completely identify with the one whom you follow. Radical commitment to be remade like Jesus that can only be done by God's power working in us. That's what Jesus is actually offering here. And this kind of eludes us, I think, sometimes when we talk about this in sermon form, but if you go home and you watch episodes four, five, and six of Star Wars, and you watch Luke transition in three movies to go from little guy on Tatooine who's a farmer fixing droids to becoming a Jedi, a completely new identity, you get that, don't you? Take the analogy. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what Jesus is offering. He's saying, not only do I want you to just have a little piece of me, my identity, Luke becomes a Jedi Knight. You're supposed to become a little Jesus Christ. That's what's supposed to happen. That's what Christian means, by the way. Jesus is giving us a new and eternal purpose and a work that matters, and he does so in a bold way. He pushes the language as far as it will go into the offensive territory to his hearers. Excuse me. Go to verse 54. He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. When you identify with me and become like me, I'm not going to forget you when eternity begins. I'm not going to forget you when we enter into the kingdom. You will be brought in with me. I will raise you up on that day, and it will go well. Jesus is offering us not just this new and eternal purpose, but this new identity in him to become like Jesus, and that only comes through full and complete commitment to Jesus, and he pushes his hearers to the limit. Verse 55, he kind of doubles down on it. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. This is a Jewish man talking to a Jewish crowd. None of them are cannibals. And as you heard in Deuteronomy this morning, the blood is the life of the animal. When it comes to the atonement sacrifice, that was poured out because that was given because you deserve to die and the animal did instead. And you pour out the blood, you don't eat the blood. That is not okay. That's forbidden. And Jesus says, I'm the one that gives you life and it's my blood that's going to do it. I'm the one that's food that gives you sustenance, and it's my flesh that's going to do it. And they don't know the fullness of this yet, but we do on this side of history. What he's saying. What Jesus is offering is a new identity, not an affirmation of who you are, not your best self. What he's offering is an invitation to become who you're supposed to be. Like Jesus Christ, completely identified with him as one of his own. And sometimes in that safety, if we haven't fully put that on and clothed ourselves like we heard in Colossians, then what happens is we can easily put on the identity when it's convenient and take it off when it's inconvenient. When Christians are in vogue, we wear it. When they're not, we don't wear it. But Jesus says, I'm always in style. Wear me. No matter where you go, and I'm with you. Identify with me. And what's the response? What's the response Jesus gets? You go to verse 60. It says, on hearing it, Many of his disciples, he had a sort of an outer ring of disciples. These aren't just the close ones to him. Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I don't know about you, but every time I read this, I think the same thing at first. This is a hard teaching, Jesus. I can't imagine being there and hearing this for the first time. And some of his closer disciples grumble. And Jesus says, oh, are you offended? Now, If we were presenting the gospel and we had offended somebody, 
culturally, we tend to be like, okay, let's step back a little bit. Let's, let's uh, try a different tactic. What does Jesus do? Doubles down. He says, are you offended? Well, guess what? What are you going to do on the last day then when I do raise up those people? You have a decision to make here. What's your decision? He doesn't pull back. He pulls in more. He drives in further and says, make the decision. And what happens? Some people walk away, and some people go with him and identify with him. I'm not suggesting that we go around offending people with the gospel, but I would suggest that if we take a cue from Jesus, sometimes it's going to happen. Sometimes it's going to happen, and that might be a good thing because people will stumble across the message, and they'll wait, and they'll wait, and they'll wait, and let the bread get moldy and stale otherwise. I want to invite the band forward. We reiterate the main point here. In Jesus, we're invited to become one of his own. That's the invitation that Jesus gives to us, and your eating habits determine if you're going to embrace that new and true identity. And so this morning, as you consider what Jesus says, are you eating stale bread or trying? It's hard. It's crusty. You might get some good stuff in the middle. That's it. Are you looking at moldy bread that's sitting on your shelf, in your pantry, within your life. You accepted Jesus at one point, but there's never really been any fruit. You're not really committed to him. Or are this morning, are you eating something far more valuable? Are you leaning in and actually being radically reformed by Jesus and transformed into his image? because you keep getting closer and closer and closer to him. Let's pray together. Lord, help us become our true selves in your son, Jesus. Help us not only live for what was, but to embrace the true life that you give. Relieve us from the pressure of living into old forms that get stale and that lack life. Give us your grace to feast on the living bread, to be shaped and formed to be like Jesus, so that when someone sees us, they see him instead. Help us make our decision based on this identity, on this dedication to your will. Help us make our decisions based on the fear of God, rather than the fear of people, the fear of pressure, or the fear of our own feelings. Make us new, God. Make us right. Keep us true. Amen.